please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Ephesians chapter 1, we will be in the second paragraph of beginning Paul's letter to the Ephesians. A couple months ago, we together began considering the opening verses to Paul's letter. It's my intention to slowly work through this magnificent book with you, similar to how Paul Perdue has been working, journeying through the book of 2 Corinthians over the past few years. But this book is indeed a stunning summary of the Christian gospel with expansive themes that are both unattainably glorious and yet still able to be believed and then treasured. This book anchors us to what God has done through His Son to rescue and then to transform sinners like you and like me in every age, in every place, through the power of the Spirit. So as Paul will instruct us, you and I desperately need the eyes of our hearts enlightened. As he will state, the eyes of our hearts must be enlightened if we would grasp the things that he is laying before us. Follow along as I read Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when he, would, when he raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Let's pray together. Father, we aim to lift the veil through the power of Your Spirit's work within us this morning so that we might behold Your truth for us. You have caused this gathering of people to be collected in this room on this day to hear this portion of your scriptures. This is not by accident that we are staring into the the summits and the peaks and the grandeurs and the vistas of your gospel work. It will miss us, Lord. It will go right over our heads if your Spirit does not help us and our hearts do not apply themselves to grasp these immensely wonderful truths. As we have sung, as we have prayed, as we have considered through the Lord's Supper before us, we want to make much of Jesus now. Help us to do that 
as we look at this particular text before us. In Christ we pray. Amen. As you may recall, Paul is writing from prison to a church that is situated in a city of rank idolatry. Uh, It's a city controlled by the blind faith that the goddess Artemis, whose influence is felt socially, economically, and of course spiritually, Ephesian believers need fortification in soul and in mind to know that while Artemis has the appearance of control over so many, she has no real power. Indeed, there is one who is the possessor of all glory and whose sovereign power has no limits and whose electing love fulfills the human heart like nothing else. This is our triune God whose glorious grace is to be praised throughout the ages. So God's salvation story is to ring out far and wide until the end of time. That is what you and I are partners in, this great commission to send the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ to every people in every place. But until then, Paul's readers must come to know a series of important truths, truths that will change their lives and will anchor them from the moment they hear them till the end of their lives. And just as you might recall, verses 3 through 14 in chapter 1 form one long, continuous sentence in Greek. We now begin another long, continuous Greek sentence beginning in, chapter, beginning in verse 15, continuing through 23. Paul begins his movement from the hymn of blessing and praise lifted up in verses 3 through 14 to now thanksgiving And then to prayer in his next paragraph that naturally flows from the truths that he just explained. Let's first look at verses 15 and 16. Paul's movement from praise, which is where he's coming from. He's coming right out of verse 14, which was that glorious hymn exalting each member of the Trinity in in just a beautiful symmetry. And now he's moving to thanksgiving, but he's not done, to prayer. An unforgettable hymn is laid out for us. But now Paul offers an unforgettable prayer of intercession built upon the hymn that precedes it. So having heard of God's transforming work in their hearts, as well as their love for each other, as he states, Paul assures them of his unceasing thanksgiving for them and how he consistently remembers them in his prayers. So the phrase, for this reason, that begins verse 15, tells us more than that Paul merely caught wind of the fact that some people in Ephesus had become Christians. It's more than this. He's saying, all that I've just explained about God the Father's eternal wise plan and the Son's cross-centered obedience and the Spirit's sealing and securing work and salvation for Christians because of all of that, For this reason, because I long to see these truths perpetuated in the earth to the praise of God's glorious grace, now I'm taking action, Paul's saying. What is that action? I'm thanking God as I hit my knees in prayer for you. I'm thanking God as I go to prayer. So when was the last time you personally followed this train of thought? Paul's sequence of 
of theological thinking here. First, deliberate praise to each member of the Godhead for their respective contribution to the splendor of redemption. We ought not assume these things. What we end up assuming, we forget. That is why we come together in the grace that is a worship gathering, a worship service each and every Lord's Day to hold before our minds and behold before our hearts the things that matter most, the glories of Christ, to observe the table and to allow these powerful symbols to remind us of truth. And second, there is deliberate thanksgiving to God for letting this gospel loose to save sinners. Paul is genuinely overjoyed and thankful, and he hears people are coming to Christ. The gospel's working. It's not just a set of truths that remain in the abstract and do nothing in the here and now. It is transforming people for the glory of God. And lastly, there's deliberate prayer that God would keep on opening eyes of the redeemed to truly grasp the fullness of these blessings. Is this kind of thoughtfulness your practice in prayer? Is it easy? Absolutely not. It is labor. As, as Tim Keller writes in a book he has written on prayer, he says, he says this, prayer is awe, intimacy, and struggle, and yet the way to reality. There is nothing more important or harder or richer or more life-altering. There is absolutely nothing so great as prayer. Praise leading to thanksgiving leading to prayer, a sanctified sequence that you and I would do well to learn from. So what is the content then of Paul's exemplary, theologically packed prayer for the Ephesian believers? Well, first, Paul desires that believers might know God better. He desires that their knowledge of God would not remain where it currently is, but that it would grow. In verse 17, Paul asked that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. So here, I don't think Paul is asking for God to give the human spirit within each Christian the sense of wisdom, uh, nor do I think he's asking that God grant a second helping or a second blessing of the spirit to come and reside within believers, I think Paul is asking that the Spirit of God mediate to God's people the moral dexterity, the skillfulness to live in God's world for His pleasure, all the while operating with a dependency upon the Spirit to illumine our eyes so that we live by divine revelation. This is what I believe is being asked here. This is how believers come to know God better. This is the process. Do you want to grow? Do you ask yourself that question every now and then? There are answers. There are really good answers. Paul's providing one here. They beseech God's Spirit. This is how we grow, to open our eyes to behold wonderful things out of God's law, so that by beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. 
And as Paul clarifies to the Corinthians at the end of this very verse, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. A work of the, the, the ministry of the Spirit within the hearts of Christians is to reveal the glories of redemption to the praise of God the Father, so that we might live holy and blameless lives, as Paul's already told us already in this chapter. As J.I. Packer has written in his well-known book, Knowing God, he says this, how can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? The rule for doing this is, is simple but demanding. It is that we turn each truth that we learn about God into a matter for meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. We catch that? Simple but demanding, that we turn each truth that we learn about God into a matter of meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise of God. Paul continues to string out more and more aspects that he longs for believers to grasp. He wants them to not merely know enough about God to just skate through life, fire insurance, so to speak. No, he wants them to long to have eyes that truly see the wonders of the gospel. He longs for them to have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. Why does he want this? Why is he praying this for them? What is it that he wants them to see? Well, it is at least three things. The hope of their calling, the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints, and God's immeasurable power for us who believe. This is what he wants their eyes to be able to grasp. Theological truth, lofty, yes, attainable, understandable, the subject, the stuff, the content for which you should worship, you've got to get it. The hope of your calling, the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints, and His immeasurable power for us who believe. We must grasp these, this set of theological certainties. So what is the hope of our calling, brothers and sisters? What is the hope of our calling? Well, this is the goal of our salvation. As Paul makes crystal clear earlier, our calling is an effectual one, a calling that always draws forth precisely what it sets out to lay hold of. Just as Lazarus obeyed Christ's voice as he sprung free from the bonds of physical death, so we as believers who hear and obey the Savior's voice spring from bond, the bond of spiritual death. And if you have been saved, you have been called by God. What certainty we have in God's saving purposes. And how does that give hope? Well, as needful as it is for Christians to remember what Christ accomplished in the past, as much as that is what we have done and we must continue to do until the Lord returns, is, is to look back to all that Christ has accomplished, Christians also look forward. Eternal life in the new heaven and the new earth in the presence of God awaits us, brothers and sisters. This is the hope of the glory of God, as Paul writes in Romans 5. 
This is the hope of sharing that glory, appearing with Christ in glory at the end, as Paul writes in Colossians 3. How skilled are you at longing for this? Are you skilled at longing, yearning, looking forward to things in general? I'm sure you are. Children, perhaps you've just had spring break. Well, let's put that in anyone who just had a spring break is going to be thankful. But perhaps, children, you've had a spring break and now your sights are set on the summer. And you're longing for all the fun that you can't wait is, is going to be there for you. Just a couple more months. You're thinking about it. You're longing for it. Parents, perhaps you're longing to see the warmth of summer. Perhaps you're wondering to, or looking forward seeing family, anticipating a sweet reunion of close relationships, and to see the joy of kids' faces as they experience new things and enjoy memories with, with close friends or relatives. Or perhaps your job has been quite draining lately and, and you're just longing for some time off. You're leaning, you're pressing forward. Make it your aim to long for nothing more than the goal of your salvation, the hope of your calling, the fixed certainty of what is in store for us. The next theological certainty here is Paul wants us to grasp is the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. So more literally, the phrase could read the riches of the glory of God's inheritance in the saints, or as one translation puts it, God's holy people who are His rich and glorious inheritance. You catch the distinction? So for sake of clarity, it's not the Christian's inheritance that's in view here, but rather God's inheritance that we must see. And what is that? That is us. For Christians, we are God's inheritance. With our knees staggering in amazement at this thought we must come to terms with who we are in Christ. It is that we are in union with Jesus Christ that we can claim this. Do you know and therefore value your new identity in Jesus? Do you think in those categories regularly, routinely? We've been chosen in Him his righteousness has been credited to us. We are joint heirs with Him. These are the truths that need to occupy our vision. The last theological certainty Paul wants us to grasp in verse 19 is the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe. The immeasurable greatness of God's power. It cannot be said that God has left Christians unarmed and defenseless as they journey through the Christian life. You can't say that. You absolutely can't. As the well-known hymn states, oh, what peace we often forfeit, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Here Paul is praying, even pleading, that you and I would not turn a blind eye to the life-transforming, sin-killing power that always accompanies the gospel when it takes up residence in the soul of a man or a woman. As one theologian writes, Paul cannot be satisfied with a brand of Christianity that is orthodox but dead. 
rich in the theory of justification, but powerless when it comes to transforming people's lives. This contradiction ought never to be there. May God give us a, a keen awareness of the cheap, knockoff, imitation version of authentic Christianity that appears squeaky clean, but lacks the greatness of God's power for those who truly believe. So does this power showcase itself in your life? Now Paul wants to speak a little more to the greatness of God's power. He wants to extrapolate this idea a little bit more in the remaining verses. So let's continue in verses 19 through 23 as we are led to see several more demonstrations now of this power, the greatness of this immeasurable power. Paul will circle back to how precisely this power is meant to transform Christians a couple chapters later in chapter 3. But for now, he means for us to see one example after another of God's power. So if you were asked to describe God's power, where would you turn? What would be your example you might give? Well, I think for a lot of us, we'd probably turn to creation, right? And the endless, mind-blowing complexities related to how God has engineered the universe to amaze us at every turn, from the power of an earthquake or a tsunami or a hurricane to the power of new life being formed within the womb. There is enough powerful things in the world to keep our list growing for days and days and days. And yet this isn't where Paul goes when he wants to demonstrate the greatness of God's power. First, Paul underscores God's power through the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. The power Christians are afforded as they perfect the skill of living holy and blameless lives in the same power that was exerted upon Christ when God raised Him from the dead. This is ours, and Paul wants us to know it. He writes to the Philippians that he longs to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. But this is not all. Next, he highlights the power displayed in Christ's exalted position. God has seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. It is the age to come, but in this age too, brothers and sisters. It was especially important that the Ephesians grasp and that they know that no magic or sorcerer or member of the occult that they would interact with on a regular basis could claim a power that superseded that of the Christian's Lord and Savior. They didn't have more. They didn't have an aspect, a corner on power. This belonged to the risen Christ. Jesus has fulfilled Psalm 110, which states, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Christ has indeed taken his rightful spot next to the Father, and he has indeed put his enemies to open shame, triumphing over them in the cross. As he writes to the Colossians. 
And while the nations may rage, as Psalm 2 tells us, and the peoples plot in vain, and the kings of the earth dig their heels in against the Lord and against His anointed, it matters not a bit because Jesus reigns. Jesus reigns. And this showcases God's power. Last, Paul highlights the power exercised by Christ over all things, including His church. So resurrection power, enthronement power, and now headship power. Verses 22 and 23 read, And He put all things under His feet, and He gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. God's sovereignty is mediated through God's Son, who exercises that power for the good of the church. Brothers and sisters, I know Romans 8 and 2 Corinthians 5 both speak to the fact that we groan in the here and now, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling and for the redemption of our bodies. I know that. And I recognize that we must keep that longing alive so we don't find too much comfort in this age. But do not interpret that groaning to mean we are somehow unsafe in the here and now. There is no one more safe than the Christian. Even the Christian held in captivity awaiting martyrdom is safe when he grasps these very truths that Paul is unfolding before us. All things under Jesus' feet. He reigns supreme over everything and everyone. And all this power gets exercised for your good. For your good. Think of that. What comfort this should bring to Jesus' church. If you have not bowed the knee to Christ, if these promises are not coming to bear upon your soul because you are not named among the children of God, I pray that you would repent of your sins so that you can too share in these things. You are never more unsafe than when you are outside of the mercy of Christ. Come to Him in faith and repentance so you too can share in these treasured truths. And while Jesus is enthroned as sovereign over all things, He is also the head over His church, His body. It's been said, as the bridegroom, Christ is incomplete without His bride. As the vine, He cannot be thought of without the branches. And as shepherd, He is not seen without His sheep. So also, as head, He finds His full expression in His body, the church. That's not to imply that Christ somehow needs sinners to complete Him. Not at all. It is, however, to say that these metaphors given to us by Christ find rational completeness when Jesus fills His proper place. And what joy fills our hearts to know that just as God's glory filled the temple under the old covenant, Christ fulfills, Christ's fullness fills His church through His Spirit since the church is indeed being built up into the dwelling place of God as His temple. As Christ's body, we bear a high responsibility to then animate, 
to live out as the body that which the head tells us to do. It would be a rough day for every single one of us if there was a contradiction of what the brain is saying and what the body's doing. Bad on every level. <laughs> bad, bad, bad. How glorious. But what a responsibility it is for us as His church to obey, to hear, and to then animate His will in the earth. When we stand back at a distance and we reflect on these verses, we cannot miss Paul's counsel for us today. It's as relevant as ever. First, work to connect theology to doxology. Now, what is theology? It's all that you know to be true about God. And what is doxology? It is the worship of God. Connect theology to doxology. Your knowledge about God. Connect it. Work. What is blockading the connection point? What is in the way stopping your heart from rejoicing and responding in worship? Are you Are other things receiving such worship? Ask yourselves, how skilled are we at translating theological truth into the substance? More to the point, to deliberate prayer. Prayers of praise and of thanksgiving to God. Furthermore, what is it that stands as a wall within our hearts barricading praise and thanksgiving from freely flowing as we hear the truths of our redemption. Oh, that God would save us from an intellectualized, factualized, externalized religion that learns but does not give thanks genuinely, that stores data but does not abound in prayers and praise. We have an awesome opportunity this Friday and Saturday at our prayer project, a sort of once-a-year thing in the life of our church to live this out. If there was a passage to demonstrate the helpfulness of what will happen Friday and Saturday, it's probably this passage. Taking theology, taking truth, reading it with brothers and sisters in Christ, meditating on it, and translating it into your words of prayers of thanksgiving for the glory of God. Words of praise. What a great opportunity. Together we'll do this as God's people. Second, second, connect the power of God to your daily living. Paul's spending a lot of time here and he want, on this concept, and he wants us to get it. Let's ask ourselves, is the power of God an active, transforming truth in my daily life? What am I consistently afraid of that God's power silences? And yet I may be not taking advantage of it at all. How can remembering the authority, the control, the presence of a risen and a reigning Lord steady your fearful heart this week? I'm reminded of Peter's words in 2 Peter 1. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. 
So that is to say God's limitless power has bestowed on each and every Christian all you could ever want to live a godly life. You're not left without resources. You have it all. But how many of us in our pride want to go at it alone? We want to turn a blind eye to these gracious gifts that await us. Thirdly, work to connect your membership in Christ's body to meaningful service within His church. Taking what you know theologically to be true about your membership within Christ's body and animate that, live that out within His people, this church. Let's remind ourselves that if we are to live as Christ's body, we cannot do so effectively if our strategy is to isolate ourselves to the concerns and the interests of my own life, my own family, my own little orbit. Life within the body of Christ is challenging in every conceivable level. It will be. It's life in a family. But the growth plan that Jesus intends, just like the membership process, it's already been written by our sovereign Lord who oversees it perfectly. So let us seek to do these things, to live out our truth, the, the truth that Christ has given us, that Paul wants us to grasp to the glory of God. And may God help us as a church to love and to explore the riches of our redemption while never ceasing to convert such explorations of theology, never failing to convert that into deliberate worship of Christ, who is over all and in all. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us as your children to be able to grasp these things. I pray for any unbelieving hearts here today that they would be compelled by the staggering kindness of God to not leave us as His children unsafe, to provide all that we would ever need according to Your immeasurable power to sanctify us, to help us to live holy and blameless lives. And Father, what hope we have, the goal of our salvation to be able to know that there is no power in this earth that can stand with any force against you. You rule and you reign. Thank you that you are risen. Thank you for the confidence that gives us. I pray that we would apprehend all that the Spirit of God desires for us to see and then to live out. May we translate the theology that we know into an ever-growing life of thanksgiving and prayer to you, Father. Forgive us for our prayerlessness and help us to, to pray and to sing and to revel in, to bask in the amazing things accomplished for us through your grace. Help us now to respond in song with gratitude in our hearts 
in Christ we pray. Amen.